Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. A former senior U.S. official says he helped plan foreign coups while arguing that what happened on January 6th was not a coup. President Biden is visiting the Middle East. Will he emphasize human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia? Not everyone thinks he will. Portions of the video from the Uvalde school shooting have been released by an Austin, Texas newspaper, drawing both anger and criticism. Sri Lanka's president flees the country hours before he is scheduled to step down. Residents have protested over the country's economic nosedive. President Biden's four-day trip to the Middle East is underway. Some hope he will emphasize human rights issues in Saudi Arabia, but the president has said that he doesn't want to ruin relations with Saudi officials. Saudis in various countries are hoping that political prisoners in Saudi Arabia can be let go. Many of them are putting their hopes on Biden's visit. But the president himself said in a Washington Post commentary on July 9th that his aim was to reorient and not rupture relations with Saudi Arabia. One U.S. citizen whose brother was sentenced to 20 years in prison in Saudi Arabia says she doesn't like Biden's idea of not rupturing relations with the Saudis. This visit could actually fire back. There, they could embolden, uh, you know, the the Saudi officials who have been committing abuses, human rights abuses. Um, it could be. It could mean to them that President Biden is forgetting about his promise to improving human rights. During his trip, President Biden is scheduled to focus on strengthening ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia to tackle Iran's nuclear threats together. He also wants to convince the Saudis to pump more oil because of rising prices. Countering aggression from China and Russia also is on the agenda. A senior U.S. administration official said Biden will also raise human rights issues at the bilateral meetings. Israel is the other country that the president is scheduled to visit. Over 16,000 policemen and security personnel were deployed across Jerusalem in preparation for the visit. People in Jerusalem seem to welcome the American president and hope the meeting will be positive for the region. I really hope that he makes a very strong connection to with the prime, Min prime minister today um, and on his whole entire trip. And I really hope that he makes agreements with Israel that they're going to stay as their allies. Biden is expected to spend two nights at the King David Hotel, which hosted several U.S. presidents in the past. After his two days in Jerusalem for talks with Israeli leaders, Biden will meet Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank, which borders Jerusalem. Former senior U.S. official John Bolton says he helped plan attempted coups in foreign countries. He made the comment to CNN after yesterday's January 6 hearing. He was disagreeing with one of the committee's claims based on his own experience in planning coups. Entity's Jessica Beatty has more. The January 6th committee Tuesday claimed that former President Trump tried to mount an insurrection against the U.S. government in 2020 to stay in power. But John Bolton, the former White House national security advisor for Trump, disagrees. He told CNN's The Lead Tuesday that he didn't think Trump could have pulled off a carefully planned coup aimed at the Constitution. CNN's Jake Tapper pushed back. One doesn't have to be brilliant to attempt a coup. Uh, I disagree with that. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat, yeah. not here, but, you know, other places, uh, it takes a lot of work. And that's not what he did. It was just stumbling around from one idea to another. Bolton said he doesn't think Trump was trying to overthrow the Constitution, but instead was trying to buy more time to throw the matter back to the states. Bolton said he thinks the J6 committee risks overreacting. And if it goes too far to prove its case, it could undermine it. 
Trump supporters are wary of the committee. The only two Republicans on it are vocal critics of Trump. Some also question the timing of the hearings with the midterms coming up. Meanwhile, after Bolton's comment about helping plan coups, people want to know which ones he's talking about. He didn't give any details when CNN asked, but he did mention Venezuela as an example of how hard it is to attempt a coup. Under the 2020 Operation Gideon, Venezuelan dissidents and an American private military company, Silver Corps USA, attempted unsuccessfully to overthrow Venezuelan leader Nicolas Maduro. At the time, Maduro blamed the attacks on the Trump administration and neighboring Colombia. Both denied involvement. A year prior, Bolton publicly supported Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido's call to oust Maduro. Trump fired Bolton in 2019. The White House at the time told Fox News that many of Bolton's policy priorities did not align with President Trump's. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Surveillance footage from the Uvalde school shooting was published online. The video shows the shooter entering the school and classroom, as well as the police response. Please note, the following footage may be disturbing to some viewers. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg reports. The Austin American Statesman, a Texas newspaper, posted the footage on their website. The video shows the 18-year-old gunman crashing his vehicle outside the school and entering the building after firing his gun outside. He walks in through an unlocked door carrying a semi-automatic rifle. The sound of gunfire and children screaming is then heard for more than two minutes. Police officers arrive in the hallway minutes later. They take cover but don't confront the shooter. Another 77 minutes go by before they breach the classrooms and kill him. Officers are seen pacing back and forth in the hallway, talking and using their cell phones. About 20 minutes before the classroom is breached, a man wearing a vest that says sheriff casually uses a hand sanitizer dispenser mounted on the wall. Police waited for keys to one of the classrooms, which investigators later say was unlocked. Law enforcement officials have been widely criticized for their handling of the situation and response time. Children inside the school called 911 several times during the attack. One of the teachers killed called her police officer husband after she was shot and told him she was dying. The officer reportedly had his firearm taken away and was restrained and escorted off the scene when he tried to save her. A report from the Texas Department of Public Safety earlier this month found that a Uvalde police officer could have shot the gunman before he entered the school, but hesitated to wait for permission from a supervisor. Texas Department of Public Safety Director Stephen McCraw says he was deeply disappointed by the newspaper's decision to publish the video, saying those most affected should have been among the first to see it. City officials insulted the media for showing the video, saying it was done for TV ratings and money. The way that video was released today is one of the most chicken things I've ever seen. The newspaper did not say how they got the video, but published an accompanying note defending their decision to post it. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Turning now to abortion, how is the overturning of Roe v. Wade impacting the nation? Senators heard from first-hand witnesses on Tuesday, one describing a man who approached a pregnancy center with a machete in hand. Here are the details. Come to order. The Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing Tuesday on the legal consequences of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. They invited five women from both the pro-life and the pro-abortion side to testify. The director of a pregnancy center in Sacramento, California, said that her clinic had a security threat last week. A man approached our care center with an armed machete. 
We have been forced to hire 24-hour on-site security. We've had to reinforce doors and bulletproof our walls. We've had to paint our building with anti-graffiti coating. We've added cameras, armed our staff with pepper spray, and stopped running our mobile clinic because of threats of violence. Republican Senator John Cornyn had an intense exchange with Professor Kiara Bridges of UC Berkeley Law School who is on the pro-abortion side. The senator noted that Bridges said that black babies are aborted three to four times more than non-black babies. You also talk about systemic racism. Do you see any systemic racism associated with the prevalence of abortion for black babies as opposed to non-black babies? Um, absolutely. Um, the higher rates of unintended pregnancy that lead to higher abortion rates among black people um, is a result of structural racism, systemic racism. Um, I understand systemic racism not to be boogeymen who are trying to uh, dupe black people into abortion care. I understand structural racism to be the systems that have made it so that black people disproportionately bear the burdens of poverty in this country, um, the systems that have denied them the basics that they need in order to, to live humane lives like food, clothing, shelter, health care, so you believe system that, you be that responds with the criminal You believe legal there system. ought to be more black babies aborted, is that right? I believe that, that we ought to create the conditions under which people can leave li lead lives that are filled with dignity and humanity. And that to means your, being able your way to, of thinking that happens when more black babies are aborted? I believe, I trust, I love black people with the capacity for pregnancy. I think they have agency, they have intelligence, they know what is best for themselves, and I would love to create the conditions under which they can live lives that are filled with dignity and humanity. And do you think a, do you think a, a baby that is delivered alive has value? Yes. Do you think that a, um, a, a baby that is not yet born has value? I believe that a person with a capacity for pregnancy has value. They have intelligence. They have agency. They no, have I'm talking dignity. about the baby. And I'm talking about the person with a capacity for and I'm, pregnancy. And you're not answering the question. Another person who testified was Illinois Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton, who's on the pro-abortion side. She said her state has become an oasis for women seeking abortions from out of state. It looks like disenfranchised yet determined patients coming from every surrounding state, but also from as far away as Tennessee, Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, and Florida. It looks like the entire staff of our state's abortion clinics fielding phone calls for appointments because the number of out-of-state patients has doubled since Roe v. Wade was overturned. And that's on top of the nearly 10,000 women who already came to Illinois seeking abortion care. Stratton says that she expects that number to grow in the coming months and years. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. The Wisconsin Elections Commission has not yet released new guidance on how to handle absentee ballots. The Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled ballot drop boxes illegal, and there's an election coming up in August. Republicans and Democrats in the commission hit an impasse when it came to deciding what the Supreme Court's ruling means and how it should be interpreted. The commission needs to prepare its more than 1,800 clerks ahead of an August 9th primary. The court recently ruled that drop boxes that enable people to drop off ballots cast by themselves and others are illegal under state law. They said voters must return their ballots in person. Republican commissioners said Tuesday the commission should provide guidance to clerks running the elections to help them better understand the ruling. Democrats argued that it is unclear what the commission can tell clerks. 
They said the proposed guidance went too far and that it could potentially confuse clerks and spark a slew of lawsuits. The state of Pennsylvania is suing officials of three counties. The state wants to force their local government to count undated mail-in ballots from a recent primary election. The Pennsylvania Department of State and the acting secretary filed the lawsuit against three counties' board of elections. Pennsylvania's Democrat attorney general said in the filing that the election officials in the three Republican-controlled counties refused to count absentee and mail-in ballots. He claimed those ballots were lawfully cast by qualified voters, but that they lack a date on the return envelope. In a press release, the Lancaster County Board of Elections wrote that the plaintiff's demand is contrary to the law or any existing court order. Pennsylvania state law requires ballots that are received on time and cast by a qualified voter but are missing a handwritten date on the envelope to be rejected. The state's lawsuit piles onto a series of similar legal battles. A recent Supreme Court decision ruled in favor of having undated ballots counted. And coming up, a former FAA official explains several factors behind the current travel disruptions at airports. Summer travelers around the globe are bracing for cancellations, delays, and other chaos. Stay tuned for more after this short break. Inflation in the U.S. is surging to the highest level in 40 years. Wednesday, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that consumer prices rose 9.1% last month in a year-over-year comparison. That's the highest rate since 1981. It's also higher than the 8.8% that economists predicted. Analysts say gas prices played a major role in June's spike, with the national average rising above $5 per gallon in much of the U.S., according to AAA. The Bureau also reported that electricity prices rose more than 13 percent for the 12-month period ending in June. Natural gas prices also jumped over 38 percent for the same time period. Summer travelers are facing mounting flight cancellations, delays, and other chaos at airports across the globe. The aviation industry is still trying to rebuild staff levels following the COVID-19 pandemic. A former FAA official explains the situation. Kenneth Quinn is a former chief counsel of the Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA. He says that behind the mass travel disruptions at U.S. airports is a staffing issue plaguing the entire aviation industry. There are shortages throughout the entire system, uh, from air traffic control to pilots to baggage handlers to ticket agents to you name it, including TSA and the pre-check system. So the shortage is real. One of the problems with uh, the controllers is that they're letting them go for 10 days after they test positive for COVID, where CDC is letting them you know, instructions to come back after five days. Quinn says the FAA has a staffing crisis and they need to take the blame for making the situation worse. He says he thinks the Secretary of Transportation and the FAA administrator need to be focused on the issue. And pilot strikes took a toll as well. The airline pilots association around the world, many of them are, are not happy with the situation today. Many of them feel like it's not a staffing shortage issue. It's a pay issue and a benefits issue. At the same time, the regional carriers in the world that feed into the hub networks of the larger carriers can't hold on to pilots. An airline trade group said last month that U.S. airlines have cut about 15 percent of planned summer flights. Quinn says this is going to be a very difficult time for air travel and that the situation will probably get worse before it gets better. It's going to be certainly through the end of August and through the Labor Day period. Usually it gets a little bit better at the end of September. 
and, and then there's a lull, end of September, October, and until we build to holiday time period. And of course, it gets crazy again at Christmas and Thanksgiving and other holidays around the world. So it's going to be a difficult time. Meanwhile, in the UK, the head of a body representing Global Airlines hit out at new restrictions at London's Heathrow on Tuesday. Willie Walsh, director general of the International Air Transport Association, says the airport had underestimated the speed of the recovery. Two people died, including a seven-year-old boy, after a boat overturned Tuesday afternoon off the New York City shoreline. Ten other people were rescued. Authorities say a family chartered the boat. The New York Police Department sent divers into the Hudson River to help rescue some of the victims. The captain of the boat is in critical condition. The conditions of the other people involved have not been released. A key part of a newly passed gun law in New York gets its first challenge. The New York law is a reaction to the Supreme Court's recent overturning of a long-standing concealed carry restriction. Congressional candidate Carl Palladino filed a lawsuit challenging Section 5 of the gun law in a federal court in Buffalo. The challenged section bans people with concealed carry permits from bringing their concealed weapons into private businesses unless the owners put up signs saying guns are welcome. People who bring guns into places without these kinds of signs could be prosecuted on felony charges. The lawsuit claims Section 5 will turn the right to self-defense into a right New Yorkers may exercise only after receiving permission from strangers. Palladino says he is prepared to go all the way to the Supreme Court. The sweeping new gun law signed by the New York governor is set to take effect September 1st. Hochul said on Tuesday that the new gun law is solid and that she is ready to defend it in court. Detroit is enacting bail reform. The move comes as other cities are reconsidering their own bail reform efforts, such as New York City and San Francisco, where the reform is blamed for rising crime. Detroit's district court and advocates say the reforms strike at racial inequality in the criminal justice system. Judges can still impose cash bail, especially if defendants are deemed a flight risk or a danger to the public. However, judges must say on the record how imposing bail would protect the community or prevent a failure to appear in court. Also, every individual making less than $27,000 a year will be assumed unable to post cash bond. That's twice the federal poverty level. This was the scene Tuesday as passengers roughed off an airplane at Denver International Airport. This follows reports of smoke and fire under the plane. A passenger shot this video as people got off the United Airlines plane while the flight crew urged them to leave their bags on the plane. Witnesses say everyone moved quickly and they were off the plane in less than two minutes. The Denver Fire Department responded at the gate and said on Twitter that firefighters quickly put out the small fire. The flight was coming in from Kansas City, Missouri. No one was hurt. A mother and her daughter have pleaded guilty to fraud in federal court. Their crime? Operating a funeral home in Colorado, but instead of cremating all bodies, they sold some. It's believed that they defrauded at least two dozen families this way. At least one corpse was sold for use in a human body exhibit in a museum overseas. The victim said in court that her father's body was sold to a center in Saudi Arabia that preserves body parts for the price of a cheap used car. She learned from the FBI that the ashes she received were not her father's. In the U.S., selling organs for transplant is illegal, but the sale of body parts for use in research or education, which is what the two did, is not regulated by federal law. 
One of the two reached a plea deal and will likely spend five to six years in prison. The second person didn't reach a deal, and prosecutors are seeking 12 to 15 years. 4,000 beagles will be transferred from a Cumberland, Virginia research facility. The location, known as Envigo, was cited for animal welfare violations. The Humane Society is working with the Department of Justice to remove the beagles. A Department of Agriculture report shows that between January and July of last year, more than 300 puppies died of unknown causes at Envigo. Under the court-approved rescue plan, the beagles will be transported to partner animal shelters and rescue groups. From there, the puppies will be put up for adoption. The entire transfer will take around 60 days. The Humane Society will cover the cost of transportation, while Invigo will pay an adoption fee per animal to the shelters. Ever bought a tuna sandwich from Subway? The sandwich chain says it's 100% tuna, but some people think that claim is a little fishy. Last year, two people filed a lawsuit in California saying Subway's tuna partially or wholly lacks tuna as an ingredient and that it's actually other types of fish. Subway pushed back, saying the non-tuna DNA could be from eggs and mayonnaise or the result of cross-contact with other ingredients. But the judge in the case isn't completely buying it, saying Tuesday it's too soon to accept that argument and the lawsuit against Subway can move forward. This doorbell video shows the moment a stranger stopped to alert a family that their garage was on fire. Your guys' garage is on fire. And with that, Good Samaritan Haley Strong possibly saved the lives of this family, all 10 of them. Strong said she spotted the blaze about a mile away and drove over to notify the family. Josh Ellis and Brittany Downing said they heard Strong's knocking around 1 a.m. while they were watching TV. They said their eight children were sleeping and had to be woken up. Thanks to Strong, the whole family was able to make it out of the house safely. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Just ahead, with the Nord Stream 1 pipeline under maintenance, Europe is wondering what to do if Russia cuts off its gas supply to Europe. And in the Netherlands, farmers are frustrated. The country is planning a new policy aimed to cut nitrogen emissions to protect certain plants, but there are concerns it might end up cutting half of the country's farmers. Is the policy part of a broader agenda? Find out more right here on NTD News. Sri Lanka's president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, fled the country early today, just hours before he was due to step down. He is now in the capital of the Maldives. Protesters were still gathered in and around his office. Rajapaksa's impending resignation comes after thousands stormed his and the prime minister's official residences over the weekend, demanding their ousters over their handling of a devastating economic crisis. The mood at both residences was festive on Tuesday as families and friends settled into the premises, including 51-year-old Duncan Ratnayake. The Prime Minister and the President must listen to the request of the innocent people and hand it over to the country's youth. The President has not been seen in public since Friday. Parliament will elect his replacement on July 20. The immigration official said authorities could not under law prevent a sitting President from leaving the country. But on Tuesday, officials stopped the president's brother and former finance minister Basil Rajapaksa from flying out of Sri Lanka. It was not immediately clear where he was trying to go. 
The Rajapaksa dynasty had dominated local politics for years, despite most Sri Lankans blaming them for current problems. Another of the president's brothers, Mahinda Rajapaksa, resigned as prime minister in May after protests against the family turned violent. His replacement, Ranil Wickremesinghe, did not move into the official residences and was not present when protesters broke in and set the place on fire. President Rajapaksa's sudden departure Wednesday marks a historic turning point for the country. Now no one from his family remains in a position of power. The Prime Minister of Sri Lanka directed the Defence Ministry to declare a state of emergency across the country Wednesday. He also asked for a curfew to be imposed on the western province. This comes after police and protesters squared off outside the Prime Minister's office in the city of Colombo. What will Europe do if Russia turns off the gas taps? Russia usually supplies about 40% of Europe's natural gas, mostly by pipeline, but the Nord Stream 1 pipeline that transports gas from Russia to Germany is undergoing planned maintenance. This raises the question, what happens if the outage is extended? German network regulator Klaus Müller says it's no guarantee that the gas will come back after the 10-day maintenance period. Nord Stream 1 has informed us as is customary. However, what happens once the maintenance is done remains to be seen. No one can predict that. Is it maintenance which is over in 10 days, or earlier, or later? Unfortunately, we have to wait and see. I also don't expect us to be informed much earlier than the day before. With Ukraine having closed the Sokranovka transit pipeline that runs through Russian-occupied territory in the east of the country, European countries have been seeking to cut their reliance on Russian gas. Some have already been cut off after they rejected a Russian demand to pay in rubles. But others, including Germany, still need Russian gas and are trying to refill depleted reserves. One alternative route to Europe that does not go via Ukraine includes the Yamal Europe pipeline, which carries around a sixth of Russian gas exports to Europe. If not from Russia, where else can Europe get its gas? Some countries have alternative supply options, and Europe's gas network is linked up so supplies can be shared. Germany, the biggest consumer of Russian gas, could import from Britain, Denmark, Norway and the Netherlands via pipelines. Norway, Europe's second biggest exporter behind Russia, has been pushing up production to help the European Union towards its target of ending reliance on Russian fossil fuels by 2027. Centrica, a British energy and services company, has signed a deal with Norway's Equinor for extra gas supplies to the United Kingdom for the next three winters. Britain does not rely on Russian gas and can also export to Europe via pipelines. Southern Europe can receive Azeri gas via the Trans-Adriatic Pipeline to Italy and the Trans-Anatolian Natural Gas Pipeline through Turkey. And the United States has said it can supply 15 BCM of liquefied natural gas or LNG to the European Union this year. Other options for nations to cope include turning to electricity imports via interconnectors from their neighbours. Or they could boost power generation from nuclear, renewables, hydropower or coal. But nuclear availability is falling in Belgium, Britain, France and Germany. With plants facing outages as they age, are decommissioned or phased out. Europe has also been trying to shift away from coal to meet climate targets. But some coal plants have been switched back on since mid-2021 because of surging gas prices. 
For now, though, Germany and Europe remains in the dark about what will happen after the Nord Stream 1 maintenance is complete. Farmers in the Netherlands continue to protest a policy proposal aimed at cutting certain emissions like nitrogen oxide in half by 2030. What is a Dutch member of parliament saying about the proposal and what do farmers say will happen to the supply chain? We find out from a reporter who visited the country. Please welcome Roman Belmakov, who is the host of the Epic Time show Facts Matter. Thanks for making the time today, Roman. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Can you tell us more about this agenda that the Dutch member of parliament you spoke to was describing on turning the Netherlands into a big city and what this means for the country's sovereignty? Yeah, so when we flew over to the Netherlands, my team and I, we had a big burning question, which was how could the parliament there justify at a time when you have the Russia-Ukraine war destabilizing the food supply across the entire world, how could they justify implementing new regulations that would force between 30 to potentially even 50 percent of the farmers there to just pack up shop and, and sell their farms to the government and not farm again in the country? And so we went around and we spoke with a number of people, but the Dutch member of parliament that you mentioned, Mr. Terry Boudot, he's the leader of one of the opposition parties that's fighting back against this. And what he said was that what happened is that 22 years ago, uh, the Netherlands signed on to an agreement called the Europa uh, uh, 2000, because it was signed in the year 2000, and they agreed to protect certain types of wildlife. I think in their case, it was moss, clover, and hay. And because they need to protect this very specific species of plants, they ha- need to have their nitrogen levels at a, certain, at a certain point. Otherwise, that would turn the ecosystem a little bit different, and those, and those particular species wouldn't be able to thrive. Now, since then, of course, it's been 22 years and things have developed. But what's happening now is that the nitrogen levels, apparently, at least according to the scientists that are being employed by the parliament, they're getting to a level where the biodiversity would actually shift. And he was saying the member of parliament, in his opinion, would be the correct action to take would be to write a letter to the EU and say, hey, listen, like maybe this agreement made sense 20 years ago, but now at a time with global food crisis and half our farmers' livelihoods on the line, we're no longer going to be protecting these things. We're actually going to be looking out for our farmers. So how would this affect farmers? I mean, I know there's outrage among yeah. this, but what do they tell you? So we drove around uh, the entirety of the country. It's a small country. You can actually go from the very top to the very bottom in like three and a half hours. And we got a chance to speak with dozens of farmers. And they told us, many of them told us that they would have to sell half of their livestock. And whenever anyone told me that they needed to sell half, 40%, 30% of their livestock, I would then ask a follow-up question. I would ask, can you actually sustain that? Can you actually sustain keeping your farm going by selling half your livestock. And all of them who I asked that question to said no. They would need to actually sell their farms, sell their second, third, fourth generation farms because the overhead doesn't change. It's only the profit that's going to change if you sell half your cattle. So a lot of them said that this is a disaster waiting to happen, um, not only for them, but for the entire supply chain. You have truckers, uh, packers, you have cheesemakers, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's a whole ecosystem there, yeah. Seems like this would be a chain reaction. If the farmers go under, what happens to the country? I mean, they have to provide their own food, right? Yeah, well, this is where things get a little uh, uh, a little questionable because they are one of the biggest exporters of food in the world, the Netherlands. So they export, in terms of all uh, agricultural products, the number six. But if you look only specifically at, at our, uh, animal-related agricultural products, they're number two in the world, which is amazing. They're just for your viewers, just to give you a comparison, the Netherlands is the size of Vermont and New Hampshire together. So it's, it's a tiny, tiny country, and yet they export that much product. Now, in terms of in, the, their internal um, food system, 
it might be okay because they export so much. It might be the surrounding countries uh, that actually import their food that might have to scramble to find new supplies. Um, but the economy will definitely take a hit because while they export the food, they import the money, right? So, um, so that's, that's what people told me might happen. Roman Belmakov, host of Epic Times Facts Matter. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Just ahead, Australia says it welcomes increased American funding for the Pacific. This comes after Vice President Kamala Harris said the U.S. would triple its funding in the region. And the first case of BA5 has been found in Shanghai with the flights canceled, isolation hospitals relaunched, and mass tests required. Now residents fear having to go back into lockdown. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Australia's Prime Minister says it's important that the U.S. increases support for the Pacific region. This after a pledge by the U.S. to triple aid to the region following decades of stagnant U.S. funding. I very much welcome the increased engagement of the United States in the region. Uh, It's a a significant support package that uh, they've announced, increased diplomatic presence, uh, increased uh, support in the form of aid, increased support in the form of infrastructure development here. Vice President Kamala Harris said in a video address to the Pacific Islands Forum in Fiji that U.S. funding for the Pacific Islands would be tripled. That would bring it to $60 million a year for a decade. She said the money would go towards enhancing maritime security and combating illegal fishing and climate change. The deal is subject to approval by Congress. Australia's leader, Anthony Albanese, also told reporters in Fiji that he would have a respectful discussion with the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands. The island nation recently struck a security deal with the Chinese regime. The deal is concerning to the United States and its allies. Pacific leaders gathering for the four-day forum stressed climate change as the region's major security issue, but tensions between China and the United States and the surprise withdrawal of Kiribati from the forum are also being discussed. TikTok has confirmed that employees in mainland China can access the data of millions of Australian users. The admission came after Australia's cybersecurity minister wrote to TikTok's Australian general manager. He asked for clarification on local user data. He then publicized the correspondence on social media. He said TikTok admitted that Australian user data is accessible in mainland China in reach of the Chinese regime. This follows previous assurances it was safely stored in the U.S. and Singapore. TikTok's Australian director of public policy wrote in reply that certain team members in China can access the user data if needed for their jobs, but he said that the company has never provided user data to the Chinese regime. This comes after reports in the United States that TikTok's American user data can be accessed in mainland China. A COVID-19 subvariant has made its way to Shanghai. It's called BA5. Now all flights are canceled in the city, while authorities have ordered mass virus testing and the closing of residential compounds. Some locals say they're afraid of living under another lockdown. Let's take a look. Shanghai's first case of the BA5 subvariant was reportedly found in the city last Sunday. That's according to the vice head of Shanghai's health commission. Now the city is under fear of lockdown again. Some compounds where the infection was found were already blocked off with wires and metal sheeting. At the same time, all flights from Shanghai to other cities in China have been canceled. 
The discovery is driving ramped-up restrictions in the city starting Tuesday. The rules require mass virus testing for residents in eight major Shanghai districts. As for those who may have come into close contact with confirmed patients, isolation hospital wards have relaunched to receive them. Shanghai's population was released from an earlier months-long confinement only weeks ago. As of Monday, a total of 54 new infections have been discovered in Shanghai. That's based on the latest updates from Shanghai's Health Commission website. The numbers mark a record high since May. Dr. Anthony Fauci warned that the BA.5 subvariant can substantially evade neutralizing antibodies. He also suggested it targets both vaccinated and infected groups. Symptoms of BA.5 include runny nose, headache, sore throat, cough, and fatigue. The Tokyo District Court has ordered four former executives of Tokyo Electric Power Company to pay $95 billion in damages to the operator of the wrecked Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. That's according to national broadcaster NHK. The ruling, in a civil case brought by TEPCO shareholders, marks the first time a court has found former executives responsible for the nuclear disaster. Reports say the court judged that the executives could have prevented the disaster if they had exercised due care. A TEPCO spokesperson declined to comment on the ruling. The ruling marks a departure from a criminal trial ruling in 2019. In that case, the Tokyo District Court found three TEPCO executives not guilty of professional negligence, judging that they could not have foreseen the huge tsunami that struck the nuclear power plant. The criminal case has been appealed, and the Tokyo High Court is expected to rule on the case next year. The Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power disaster was triggered by a tsunami that hit the east coast of Japan in March 2011. It was one of the world's worst and generated massive cleanup, compensation, and decommissioning costs for TEPCO. South Korea's Unification Ministry released photographs of two North Korean fishermen who were suspected of killing 16 shipmates being forcibly dragged across the border between North and South Korea. At the time of the deportation, the government of then-President Moon Jae-in called the fishermen dangerous criminals. He said they had killed colleagues in a fight over an abusive captain on their ship before crossing the sea border. South Korea's presidential office also denounced the repatriation of two North Korean fishermen in 2019 as a potential crime against humanity by the previous government. Human rights activists have condemned the repatriation, and a U.N. investigator said South Korea had probably violated the men's rights. While their fate has not been confirmed, a U.N. rights official has said there was an expectation their rights would be violated when they were turned over to North Korean authorities. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Just ahead, Americans visiting Europe are taking advantage of the low exchange rate between the euro and the dollar. The euro dropped to parity with the dollar for the first time in two decades. And thousands of people head to Harrogate to one of the largest agriculture shows in the country, the Great Yorkshire Show, where there's plenty of sheep. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Good news if you're planning to visit Europe, but bad news if you're a European resident. The value of the euro fell to parity with the dollar for the first time in 20 years. That means one euro is worth one dollar. Here are the details. 
The value of one euro fell to just one dollar on Tuesday for the first time since 2002. The euro has lost around 12 percent of its value versus the dollar since the start of the year. This is good news for American tourists spending money in the eurozone, but may not be good news for Europeans. A trip to the United States will cost more for them, and some Italians say they are worried about the rising costs. It's definitely not a positive sign. Everything around it makes us realize that. There are increases on everything, not to mention gas and the economy. I came to Rome because I have children who study and work here. Rome is crowded, but the restaurants are not full. So the problem is real, and it's also a big one. American tourists in Rome and Paris reacted enthusiastically to the news. The current exchange rate means they now have more purchasing power in the Eurozone. Um, well, we went somewhere today in like Brandy Melville, and it was cheaper to like buy the share. Like in Euros, it was 21, and then in American dollars, it was 23. So I mean, it's cheaper to come here and buy stuff. So it's better to come here, I guess, and spend money here than spend money in the U.S. You can get the same stuff. So yeah, I mean, I guess I would come here more than because it's cheaper to come. A man from Ohio says this makes his trip a little bit more affordable. He can do some things that he might not have otherwise done. And a woman from New York says she might even reconsider her future holiday plans. Yeah, so I would definitely spend probably a little bit more than I was expecting to bring home gifts and probably do a little bit more shopping in the wonderful shops. Um, but definitely for Christmas, for holiday, um, would reconsider where we would go. Um, we normally go away somewhere warm, but maybe we go somewhere in Rome or somewhere back in Paris and France to um, take advantage of that euro. The last time the euro was below one dollar was on July 15, 2002. Both currencies have been trading at 20-year lows as the dollar has surged along with U.S. interest rates. German airline Lufthansa is canceling 2,000 summer flights from Frankfurt and Munich. Lufthansa had already cut 770 flights from the 8th to 14th of July to help relieve some of the pressure on their systems. In this most recent round of cancellations lasting until August, the majority of flights affected will be domestic and short haul. The airline said it regrets the cancellations as well as the inconvenience it will have on passengers but it said the cuts were an important action to ensure greater overall stability and thus reliability of the flight schedule in the summer, continuing that, in particular, this is intended to avoid an overload of ground processes at peak times. One of the largest agriculture shows in England opened its doors in Yorkshire on Tuesday. The Great Yorkshire Show is a celebration of the English countryside, agriculture and food. Tickets sold out this year with 140,000 people expected to attend over four days. NTD's Jane Whirl was at the show in Harrogate and sent us this report. Well, in preparation for these four days at the Great Yorkshire Show, the animals here have been groomed well in advance. We found out what it takes to get your sheep ready for the show. They're usually just grass-fed, but for about a month before um, the shows, um, we'll give them a bit more nutrition, so a bit higher protein, um, and then we'll start to prepare them, get them all dressed up about a month before. So when you're dressing your sheep, you're wanting them to kind of, you're wanting to exaggerate their their um, the, the, the good characteristics. So, for example, um, the Dutch spotted sheep are nice and long in conformation. They're wide. They've got good briskets and they've got good jiggets as well, which is what the judge is looking for. So you're wanting to kind of elaborate on that by making their you know their bums look as big. 
big as you possibly can, their breasts get looking as big as possible. Um, they want them to be nice and tight skinned, so the Dutch spotted are nice, tight, skinned sheep anyway, but you're just wanting to kind of exaggerate on that, making them look even more tighter. Um, nice and clean, sharp sheep. There's plenty more sheep just across from there. It's the sheep shearers competition, a skill that can take eight to ten years to master. And not to forget the cattle. This year at the show, there are two World Cattle Congresses. Bring out the natural shine. It's there, but you've got to bring it out. What we do is not an occupation, it's a way of life. You know, we love what we do. And everyone in the showground is doing this, will tell you the same. We wouldn't work 15, 18 hours a day, seven days a week, if we didn't love doing this. The Great Yorkshire Show has been going for more than 160 years. The director said he hopes it will continue as an agriculture show. There are many things here that are traditional. M many of the uh, sheep classes and the pig classes were all here at the beginning. People can expect to see get the shopping at Christmas if that's what they really want, an explanation from farmers about where the food comes from. But it is a great place for farmers to gather. Uh, to gather. Farming is quite a lonely old industry nowadays, and so people come here on holiday, uh, very much the livestock people do, but people that you haven't seen from one year to the next. It's a, a wonderful social gathering for everybody. While it has a strong heritage, people are also here for the food. To give you some numbers, and this is excluding sales that are made to the general public, the list for the caterers includes 400 kilograms of sausages, 40 sponge cakes, 2,200 scones, and around 10,000 Yorkshire tea bags. Jane Worrell, NTD News, Harrogate. Two jaguar cubs have become the joy of the National Zoo of Nicaragua. The female and male cubs were born on May 18th. Because of their young age, both remain with their mother inside a closed enclosure with no direct sunlight. The zoo's veterinarian hopes that once they reach three months old, they'll be able to go out to their enclosure's patio. The cubs are monitored 24 hours a day by their caretakers through video. Their names will be chosen by school children through a contest. The only condition is that they must be in an indigenous language. There are lots of different theories about food. The internet is awash with food myths. Today, we'll debunk some of them. Here's Gina Marie, who brings us Strong Mind and Body. We try to eat healthy foods and we avoid others because we heard they do something bad. In fact, what passes for truth often isn't, especially when it comes to the internet. Let's sort fact from fiction. Popcorn. The myth is that popcorn has no nutritional value. The truth is, it's a relatively healthy snack, especially if the seasoning is simple. It's rich in dietary fiber, resistant starch, and antioxidants. Resistant starch helps gut bacteria that reduces risk of diabetes and other diseases. Popcorn is ancient. Modern processing is the problem. Sugar, seasonings, and preservatives are often overused. Eggs. The myth is that eggs play havoc with cholesterol levels. Cholesterol comes from food intake and the liver. We need some cholesterol to form cell membranes and synthesize some important hormones. You'll want to avoid bad habits like a lack of exercise, eating sweets and smoking. In these cases, the liver will make too much cholesterol, but don't blame eggs. They contain vitamins A, B, D, E and K. Also zinc, lutein and folic acid. 
Eating eggs boiled is best. White rice. The myth is it has low nutritional value and if diabetics eat it, their sugar levels will rise quickly. White rice contains iron, potassium, calcium, phosphorus, the B vitamins and other nutrients. It's a whole natural food that helps blood sugar to rise steadily after a meal. Now isn't that why you eat? To get energy from food? For diabetics, consume your meal in the following order. Vegetables, beans, eggs, fish, and rice. Make sure you check portion sizes, soybeans and yams. The myth is that soybeans and yams contain phytoestrogens or plant-based hormones causing gynecological cancer. The truth is that phytoestrogens are different from animal-based hormones. Normal consumption of soybeans and yams is fine. Tofu is fine. Yams help to lower blood sugar and improve intestinal health. So there you have it, four common food myths about unhealthy foods debunked. It's time to celebrate a favorite finger food that's hard to say no to. Today is National French Fry Day. Did you know that French fries actually aren't French at all? Belgians claim they were the first to fry potatoes way back in the 1700s. But the French popularized fried foods in the mid-1700s. And there are two versions of how fries came to America. One is that Thomas Jefferson first served potatoes in the French manor at the White House in 1802. The second theory is that World War I soldiers stationed in Belgium brought the idea back with them. Today, Americans eat about 30 pounds of French fries per person each year. So whether it's shoestring, waffle, wedge, curly, or crinkle cut, be sure to enjoy some fries today. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. Music